Good morning, everybody. I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to teach this text this morning. It's kind of an exciting day. We're ending a sermon series, and we're getting ready for Advent, which starts this next week. And so it's kind of a, the weather's changing, the sermon series is changing. If you've been with us for the last couple months, um, you know this, uh, or you're going to be reminded of this. If you're new, this is kind of a moment we're ending this. But basically, the series, We Want a King, is a sermon series out of First and Second Samuel and the beginning of First Kings. And the big idea here is Israel has the Lord as king, and they come to the Lord and say, Lord, we want a king like the nation saying we want to be ruled like the nations. We want someone to fight our battles. We want someone to politically represent us. And the Lord says, trust me, you don't want that. Kings never deliver on what they said they're going to do. They're going to overpromise, underdeliver. That's what's going to happen. They're going to they're going to tax you heavily. They're going to start all these wars. You don't want that. And they go, we hear you, but we still want a king. And so God says, fine, we give you what you want. And we got these three kings of Saul and then David and then Solomon. And they all do exactly what the Lord said was going to happen. They, they overly tax. They start these battles. They're unfaithful. They can't even follow the Lord Jesus, much less follow the Lord Jesus in public and leadership. And so it ends up being this just disappointment, disappointment, disappointment. And each king ends up being more and more disappointing for more and more different reasons. And the way this sermon series ends, we're starting here, we're stopping here in 1 Kings 12, because the sermon series is called We Want a King. But after this point, there's never a season when Israel has a king. Israel's actually divided kingdom. There's multiple kings. There's factions. They're broken off. And it all goes from being one nation under the Lord to having this, these tribes and, nation, and kings. And it's, it's just way more chaotic. And so we're ending this here with this kind of final point of, and this is what God said would happen. And it's happening. Are you happy? <laughs> And it just makes me think about just this, this reality that especially all these kings have been bad, but here's when it goes really bad and the fracture sets off, the kingdom's divided, and there's no longer this unity under God's people. And this lasts for hundreds of years. Isn't that your worst nightmare? That you are the one responsible for hundreds of years of chaos and dysfunction in your family line? <laughs> And people go like, what happened to us? Like, well, I'll tell you what happened. In 2022, our great-great-great-grandpa Seth did X, Y, and Z, and that explains our family. <laughs> like, like, nobody wants to be that person, you know, and you're just mindful of what you're passing on and what's going on. And what we get in this text is actually a recipe. It's actually an instruction manual of how to create problems that outlast you. And that's the title of this sermon. And so if any of you are interested in creating problems that outlast you for hundreds of years, you can get a great how-to manual from this text. So that's what we're going to do, how to create problems that outlast you. We have four points, and we're going to walk through this, and then we're going to end there. All right? So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get going. All right? Jesus, thank you for all these examples of failure. Uh, I hope that we actually learn from them. It's easy to stand at a distance and uh, judge them, but I pray that we see ourselves as just like these people, uh, as just as likely as them to do what they did. And God, I hope that we can be wise enough to learn from other people's failures so we don't have to learn as much from our own. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So first things first, one way to create problems that will outlast you is don't listen to old men. That's what we get in verse um, 1 through 8 here. Um, so Rehoboam is a new king. He's all excited. Here we go. I'm, I'm going to start my reign and rule. And the people come to him and go like, hey, under the previous leader, your father, things were tough. He gave us this heavy yoke. He worked us to the bone. It was really difficult. 
Uh, can you lighten the load? We'd love to serve you. We're excited about this new king. We, just if you just took it down a notch or two, we'd love to serve you. And he goes, great. And this is his, the wise thing is, give me three days to think about this. And it says, and he took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon, his father, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? This is his first act as king. And they say, this is, I think you should listen to him. Like, listen to the voice of the people. Like, here, if they're going, we're overworked and we're burnt out and we can't do it anymore, then listen to them. Lighten the load. What do you have to lose? Like, you're doing fine. You have, we're doing, like, they have tons of silver, tons of gold. They're not, like, hurting. They're not, like, this isn't, like, crunch time. We got to push through to make this. They're doing fine. And then it says, verse 8, but he abandoned the counsel of the old men, gave him, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And so rather than listening to the old, so this isn't just anybody who's old. It's not like, bring me all the people over the age of 80. It's, it's bring me like the old men were these like advised wise people. Like uh, um, some of you, um, as you've gotten older and older, have gotten wiser and wiser. Um, some of you would like to think that's true of you. <laughs> I don't know. Just, uh, but it's just the truth. Like when we see old men here, it's not just anybody who's uh, been around the block a few times. It's people who have cultivated wisdom over a lifetime. And a lot of people at this church, that is totally true for you. But we shouldn't think that because our hair is graying, we are therefore wise. It is true, however, that if your hair is graying, you are therefore possibly more wise. Like your, your capacity for wisdom is way higher. Your capacity for perspective is way higher. Now, the, the reason you gather around yourself, uh, people who have been there, done that, and are still around and can speak into your life is because you're aware of your limits and your folly. Like the, the reason I go asking for counsel is because I hopefully in those moments am aware of the fact that my perspective is limited to my experience. And when I gather um, wise counsel, I am broadening my perspective to beyond my experience. Now, what happens is when you tend to gather wise counsel and listen to people who have been around the block a few times is they tend to tell you things that you didn't like. They tend to tell you things you don't want to hear. And they tend to tell you things that you hadn't thought of before. And that is an unpleasant experience to discover a blind spot, to discover um, an area of foolishness in your life, to discover um, that I didn't have in me what it took to make the good choice. And that's exactly what happens here to Rehoboam. Instead of listening to these old, wise, seasoned, tested people with perspective, he goes to his buddies. It's not even just other young, foolish. It's people who grew up with him. And says, what do you think we should do? And they're going to stroke his ego. and be like, hey, you're the king. You got to lay it down, man. You can't be showing weakness on day one. You can't go soft. You don't want to be like one of those kings who gets walked on. You got you to show them that you have spine. You know, like lay it down. Make sure you, uh, make sure you uh, uh, protect your ego at all costs. They're not going to say it like that, but they'll say something that has that effect. You're the king, man. Make demands. So he listens to his buddies. They go, what do you advise? The young man who grew up with them said, thus you shall speak to these people. Your father made our yoke heavy, but light for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. So not only trash talk them, but trash talk your recently deceased father. <laughs> so now where is my father and you heavy yoke? I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. Say, I'm going to be even tougher than that. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, scorpions are like the bane of my existence. You know, they, the, the nice thing, right? The best part, someone said, what's your favorite part about Thanksgiving is it's 
no scorpions, right? You, you, you get lulled into this belief that I don't have scorpions in my house until it gets hot again and there's scorpions in your house. Why, why scorpions? Why are they so bad? This is, see, the Bible says scorpions are the worst and they're worse than, worse than being whipped is having a scorpion in your house. It's because scorpions make you feel unsafe at all times, right? They might be in your bed. They might be in your shoe. You never know when they're going to get you. And so it's the surprise attack. They sneak in there. They get you. At least a guy with a whip, you can see it. Like there it is, you know. You can never, there might be scorpions in this room right now. We don't know. <laughs> so these young people in arrogance and foolishness go, they want mercy, make, be merciless. Why is this such a big deal? Well, first of all, like the whole point of Israel's king was they're meant to be a king like God is a king. God is a God who listens. God is a God who hears. God is a God who responds. He's kind. He, his kindness leads us to repentance. Even when he's looking to change us, it's his kindness is the means by which he changes us, says the book of Romans. And here you have this king in Israel who's doubling down on mercilessness, doubling down on cruelty, not listening, finger in the ears. And I have to, like, we have to ask the question, where are we not listening to the wise people? Where are we like Rehoboam? who's going, I'd rather be told by my buddies what I want to hear than listen to wise people who might tell me what I don't want to hear. Because especially with the internet now, if you want to be told something is true, I promise you, you can go find validation. You want to be told you're fine, nothing's wrong with you, stay the way you are? You can, I promise you can find a friend or the internet, they'll tell you that. You want to find someone who will tell you you're not who you think you are? Look in the mirror more closely. Let me shed light on this difficult blind spot and cause you pain. That's actually harder to find because that requires pain tolerance in two people. Because for me to tell you, hey, I love you. You're not who you think you are. Hey, I love you. Do the thing you don't want to do. Hey, I love you. Don't do that thing that you want to do. Like that requires pain tolerance in me because I have to be comfortable with creating discomfort in you. So if you want to create problems out last two, first thing is don't listen to old men. Second thing we get here is, uh, the, the, the second thing we do, you can go to the next slide, is to motivate with threats. We did our parent dedication thing, right? I've never been more tempted to motivate with threats than having a three-year-old. <laughs> Look, if you don't do this right now, we're only going to read three books tonight, you know? Don't even try to make me read four books who's leading here, who, you know, and, but here's what he goes to threaten them. He goes, Hey, Jeroboam gathers all the people around, come to me the third day. They're kind of looking for an answer. He speaks to them according to the counsel of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy. I'll make your yoke heavy. Um, I'll add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips and I'll discipline you with scorpions. How tough does he feel when he's saying that? Come here, look at me. It's going to get worse. So get on board. The worst thing about to do is one thing to lead with threats. It's even worse to lead with empty threats, threats you can't deliver on. Uh, how many times do you do that when you're parenting? You know, trust me, do this or else. One, two, three, three and a half, four and a half, five and a half, six, you know, and mm, we, we, these empty threats. And the reason that leading with threats is such a bad leadership move, especially when it comes to passing on faith to next generations, is because we don't actually have the capacity to deliver on these threats most of the time. Don't have sex before marriage or else, blank, blank, blank. Then guess what happens? It's, it's a lot of times none of that stuff happens. <laughs> Don't do drugs or else. And 
you better come to church or else, better obey me or else. In our own like fear-based anxiety and security, we're trying to make people feel afraid about the future, do the right thing or else the future will be bad. But then a lot of times it doesn't go as bad as you thought it was going to go and they learn to not trust you. What exactly is disciplining with scorpions anyway? I dare you to try to discipline me with scorpions. <laughs> what do you have, a scorpion farm back there, Jer? Like, like how, many, how many scorpions do you have? To dip, like, there's, this is acknowledgement that this motivating through threats is a way that you can lead an animal for a little bit of time. You know, the whip and the carrot. Right? If you're actually trying to lead with warmth, representing God well in a way that's effective for a long time, we, you know, the, there's the carrot and then there is the stick. And the carrot is actually like, hey, there's reward, there's, there's promise, there's joy. Come with me, let's go. And if we find ourselves descending into leadership through threats or what psychologists call it, negative reinforcement, we're not in good shape. I had a buddy of mine who was, uh, you know, trying to eat healthy more consistently and trying, he's asked me to help him get motivated to eat more healthy. I'm going like, well, what's going to be motivating to you? What do you need me to do? I was like, how about I take $10,000 from you and if you eat right, then I'll give it back. How's that for motivation? <laughs> Will that motivate you? He's like, eh, not really. He's like, okay, give me $10,000 and who's the politician you hate the most? If you don't eat right, I'm going to donate to their political campaign, you know. Are we motivated yet, right? And so, but this like idea of like motivating with threats or negative reinforcement, it's still short-term motivating. Like that's okay. Once you pass the test, then you had to find motivation again. But until there's like a deeper desire to actually like live in a new way or, 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 or love a new existence, like it's not, it's, it's short-term. And so you're wasting leadership energy, you're wasting faith energy, you're wasting discipleship energy, trying to do this leading with threats, especially negative threats. Uh, the next thing we see, this is one of my favorite parts in this text, is uh, overestimating your influence. This is uh, a great example, and you think you have this power, you try to capitalize on it, you have no power. Like I think, uh, so far, we, we, you know, we send my son to timeout when he doesn't listen, and up to this point, he just does what I say. Hey, Jay, you weren't listening, go to timeout. And then we walk in, there's like, hey, here's a, and he, I'm mostly, the surprising thing is that he goes to timeout, I'm like, I don't know how this happened. You know, so someone's like, how'd you get him to go to time out? I was like, I don't know. One day I told him, go sit in there for one minute and we'll come talk about this later. And he just did it. But then the other day, last week, I was like, Jay, go to time out. And he said, no. I was like, well, now what? Now I do. <laughs> go to time out twice. You know, like once he just says no, you're like, okay, well, back to the drawing board. Here we go. So yeah, try this one again. So he just said, no, here's, here's what happens is, Rehoboam tries to send the Israel to time out and they just say, no, is that how this goes? So when all Israel saw the king did not listen to him, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? Meaning, we don't have this inheritance. Go to your tents, Israel. Let's just not work. Care off your own house. Forget the king's instructions. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities. And so King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was a taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. <laughs> so Jeroboam goes, listen to me. And they say no. And he's like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to send this guy and he's going to make you guys work. So he sends this guy to make him work and they kill him. Yeah, we're not listening to you. Nice try. Now what? Your move. Checkmate. We're not doing what you want. You've proven an unfaithful king. You've proven this merciless king. We're not serving you. He tries to enforce the law and they just kill the guy. This is like a good... 
uh, clarifying Bible language. They stoned him to death with stones. In case you're wondering how you stone someone to death, it's with stones. Um, you don't stone someone to death with sticks. You stone them with stones. Uh, but I just picture, again, Red Bum's going like, I'm the king. I have influence. I have power. Go make him do the right thing. And then you get a messenger comes back. Hey, um, yeah, he's dead. It didn't work. What do you mean? You didn't listen to him? But he has the title taskmaster. Why didn't they listen to him? I have the king. I have the title king. Why didn't they listen to him? Like he's leading from this position, not leading from his relationship. And he's seeing that leading from position runs out of steam pretty substantially. But I'm the dad. Okay. Big deal. But my title says CEO. Okay. Big deal. That we tend to overestimate our influence, especially when it's given to us on the basis of our position or something like that, because we think I have this title, I have this responsibility, and therefore I'm going to make people do what they want to do. If there's one thing that I know for certain being a pastor over a church is that your authority only goes as far as people are willing to give it to you. I can't make anybody do anything. Sometimes people come to me like, hey, so-and-so is doing this. Can you make them stop? I'm like, I just want to be very clear with you. I can't make anybody do anything. So... Let's think about a different strategy. <laughs> but it's the same true with parenting, same with truth passing the faith on the next generation, same as true with leading a men's small group, same true with leading a, a, a mops table of uh, moms of preschoolers. We have to come to grips with how little influence we actually have if we actually want to make a difference. Because when you recognize how little influence you have, then you realize that I need to be loving and strategic and prayerful because only God can change people. And not only that, he can only typically change people when I've come to grips with the fact that I can't change people. (laughs) One of the biggest mistakes I think we make in trying to pass on faith or pass on vision or pass on desire is we just say, I'm the dad, or I'm the mom, or I'm the pastor, or I'm the leader, or I'm the, and expecting people to just like be on board. Like we have this trump card of positional influence. It is interesting how like the anxiety in people of faith uh, over the last uh, 20 years, or maybe even like 40 years in America as like our, we're recognizing how little influence we have over popular culture or the direction of the country as a whole. And I want to say our influence has not gone down. Our awareness of our lack of influence has gone up. Like we're mostly dealing with the pain of discovering how little control Christians have over the direction of the world. That's not to say that God doesn't have control over the direction of the world. It's to say that we don't get just to get mad about stuff and have things change. That's not how it works. And so we need to earn influence. You need to build influence. You need to build bridges, connect relationships, pray and work and labor to seek the welfare of the place which we've been sent, which is like the the grassroots work of politics, both office place and macro cultural and in the neighborhood. We need to recognize that people aren't just out here giving us blank checks and saying, lead us, you know God. That's not how it works. This metaphor of change, like you, you earn change, you spend change. That's so much of spiritual leadership, so much of parenting, so much of, uh, of leadership in any environment is you doing the work 
of building relationships, of connecting with people, of loving them well, for them experiencing you as congruent with God, full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And then with that relationship being built, we, we help lovingly lead people or guide people towards meaningful change. Some of like the, the, the faith crises I see in folks who are in their 40s or 50s who have had kids walk away from the faith. Uh, there's like this, what they're really grieving is recognizing that they presume they had more influence than they ever had. Man, I did the right stuff for the kids. I, I, I took them to the right church. I sent them to the right school. I prayed the right prayers. I did the right stuff. And, you know, input, output, return, investment, it doesn't add up. And you realize that the reason you love people well and the reason you try to, in faithfulness, do the right thing is not so that you can control an outcome, but because the Lord loves it and we're trying to walk in obedience ourselves. We don't obey because we think that's how we're going to get what we want from God. We obey because it's the right thing to do. And if we think that because of our obedience, we'll get a return on our efforts, then we're just silly because there's no guarantee. We can't overestimate our influence. The fourth one we got is a little uh, less succinct than the other ones. Tempt the next generation to worship false gods because of your hypocrisy. So Rehoboam um, goes real bad. He tries to enforce his rule. Um, he's not listened to. He gets um, stoned to death with stones. Um, so Israel, this is what it says in chapter 12, verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Then they put up this other king, a guy named Jeroboam. And now you have two kings in Israel. It's divided. It's house divided. It's, it's schism. It's split. It's not good. And now it's just kind of going this whole we want a king thing. Now it's just obviously gone so bad that they don't even have a nation. Now we have two nations with two kings. And it's this uh, tension-filled situation. Um, and Jeroboam does the right thing, sort of, but he ends up making it worse. Aren't we the same way? And I think especially um, this kind of instinct we see. So I uh, started a tradition back in 2020 uh, where I put up my Christmas lights way earlier than everyone thinks is appropriate. So I put up my Christmas lights this past week. So if you have problems with that, I don't care. So the Christmas lights are up, right? So we got a big blow up Santa. If you have a problem with that, also don't care. We have a big blow up Frosty the Snowman. Uh, if you have problems with that, see me after. Uh, I, I do care about that. Just kidding. No. So, uh, and now we have a little three and a half foot elf, the same height as Jay, so we can look him in the eye and whatever it is. We've got incandescent bulbs up because it's warm and not fake like LED lights. You know, and so we have, we have, the lights are up, right? And the main thing this year with, with Jay being three was like uh, t- telling my wife, I'm mostly nervous about how we're going to convince Jay to not help. That's what I'm mostly worried about because he's going to try to help these incandescent bulbs shatter if you like breathe on them the wrong way. You know, it's just a whole thing. We need con- how we can convince him not to help. So I got these like hard plastic pretend things and asked him to set it up. And so I was kind of creating things for him to do so that he wouldn't help. But then he kept trying to help. We had some bulbs break and it was fine. But like I was going, that was my main parenting task. How do we get him to not help? And so this is what I think happens why there's so many people deconstructing their faith is they're trying to help and they're not helping. Uh, What happens is people are raised in the church and they experience the cruelty, the hypocrisy of church people, of pastors, of their parents, 
of their leaders. Um, they experience the heavy yoke that's put on people. They experience the legalism. They experience the, the difficulty um, of growing up in a place with uh, lists and lists of expectations. And they go, this, this isn't right. It's incongruent. Don't want to do it this way. And they go, maybe the problem is, is deeper than we say it is. And so they're, they're, they're pulling apart the faith at the seams, um, which is, you know, they're seeing a real problem called the hypocrisy of God's people, and they're trying to create a solution to that. Uh, but what ends up happening is it ends up making it worse. This is what we see in Jeroboam right here. So Jeroboam is this king that's the rival king to Rehoboam. And what ends up happening is Jeroboam goes, I see and sense that Rehoboam is a destructive bad king. I am here to save you from this oppressor, this bad king. I am here to be the true and greater what that guy was supposed to be. I'm here to liberate you from all this garbage called legalism and, and oppression. And I'm going to save you from these people. So Jeroboam goes, um, now the kingdom's going to turn back to the house of David. And so what he does is he takes counsel and makes two calves of gold and sets them up to people to worship them. So Jeroboam, in his very effort to try to save people from their oppression, drives them deeper into idolatry. And now you have a huge chunk of Israel worshiping two calves of gold instead of the true and living God. That this hypocrisy over here, this cruelty, this mercilessness, this uh, um, not listening to wisdom leads to or creates a situation in which all these people are now going to be worshiping false gods. Now, most of you in this room are not going to be tempted to worship two golden calves. Not that I know of. But you will be tempted to worship your emotional state. You will be tempted to worship your bank account. You will be tempted to worship your sexual gratification. You will be tempted to worship um, politicians or political ideologies. You'll be tempted to worship schools of thought. You'll be tempted to worship um, keeping up with the Joneses on the new car, the new house, and trying to just paint yourself into this kind of suburban picture of, of, of beauty. And one of the things you can test about this is, I, is I've talked to folks who go, I think if my child turned out to be a high-functioning citizen in the United States world, you know, they got a degree, they got a job, they got a house, they got a mortgage, they kind of check all the suburban boxes, but they don't love the Lord Jesus, that I honestly would be more content with that than someone who like was sold out for Christ, but maybe made poor financial choices and didn't finish college. <laughs> Like what we really want is kind of this suburban picturesque um, Thanksgiving Day family feast. But what we should really want is a next generation sold out for Christ, even if it means bad choices financially, bad choices economically, bad choices in terms of worshiping this American suburban dream. And here, I'm just telling you, of, of my friends, my age, so it's like kind of, I'm going to say like ages, like late 20s to mid 30s, the, the main reason that they, those, those friends who have like deconstructed faith or pull things apart, the exclusive main reason, I'm not saying the main reason in a list of seven reasons, I'm saying among my friends, 100% of them, there's this experience of mercilessness or cruelty or harshness or um, grindiness of the way their parents held onto their faith in the home. That there was this, you afraid of the whips, here's the scorpions. This intensity, a severity, an unkindness, 
Like when I think about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, just not that, but calling it faith. Now, I'm not saying that explains 100% of deconstruction or idol worship, but I'm saying it explains a lot of it. And we get so preoccupied with seeing worldliness out there that we are blind to see the worldliness that's in here. And one of the main ways that worldliness plays out is our severity and mercilessness and controlling, our hand-wringing, our white-knuckling, our like this severe taskmasterness, overestimating our influence. We want repentance in the world, but we're not good at repenting ourselves. We hate the idols out there in the world, but we're the ones creating the conditions that make those idols look attractive in the first place. So here's the deal. If Rehoboam in the first place listens to wise men and he's kind to the people he was king over, the situation in which Jeroboam causes so much of Israel to worship two false gods doesn't even happen. It can't even happen. That it's our hypocrisy, our mercilessness, our lack of repentance, our lack of graciousness that even creates the conditions for idol worship in the first place. And here's how we end the series, that we want a king, is Israel has this king named Jeroboam, who's helping Israel worship false gods. We want a king. Are you sure you do? Yes, we do. Well, you're divided and you're idolatrous. How'd that turn out? And so many of us in this room, we have instincts like Jeroboam. We see real oppression. We see real misdeeds. We see real hypocrisy. And we want to save people from it. But even in our saving people from it, we lead people into deeper forms of idolatry. <laughs> We make it worse. I want to help, and we're actually not helping. And this is why the big idea I want us to get away from, or, or not to get away from the sermon, is to lay on the sermon, is that we need Jesus over Jeroboam. <laughs> that Jesus is the one who sees real oppression and actually delivers liberation. Jesus is the one who sees real mercilessness and actually delivers real mercy. Jesus is the one who sees the false kings and the false gods and the false things and delivers a real king and a real God in a real gracious tone in a real way congruent with the Father. He's the only Lord, the only King, the only Savior who actually faithfully congruently represents God the Father most high. And rather than being like Jeroboam who sees a real problem and tries to deliver a solution and makes it worse, Jesus sees a real problem and delivers a solution and finally, once and for all, solves the issue. And so rather than being the type of people who want to deliver from hypocrisy by leading people deeper into hypocrisy, when people who, who see hypocrisy want people to deliver from it and we point them to Christ, not to ourselves. So often we as the church have messages like this. Yes, you've seen hypocritical Christians, but guess what? Come follow me. I'm not a hypocrite. Come be like us. Look at Redemption Gateway. Look at us. We're not like other churches, and we are being like Jeroboam when we do that. The answer is not, yes, Christians are hypocritical. Come be part of us. We're not. The answer is, yes, Christians are hypocritical. Follow Christ, not Christians. Follow Jesus, not pastors. And we got to understand that we are here not to point people to our faithful witness. We're here to, as much as possible, faithfully point people to Jesus. We're not... The goal of Redemption Gateway is not to be different than those other hypocritical Christians. 
The goal of redemption gateway is not to be better than those idolatrous other Israelite people. The goal, like that's not our goal here is to go, we are like those people. We need to follow Jesus. We left to our own devices are just like Rehoboam. We left to our own devices are just like Jeroboam. And that's why we need to cling to Jesus. Not so that we can be different, not for branding, not for marketing, but because we know this is in our hearts. And if we're not careful, it'll get very contagious. So I hope that we as a church have a moment to really quietly examine our hearts after this We Want a King series and go, do we want a king like the nations? Or do we want the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ? What do we really want? So I'm going to pray and then mess up time for communion. But what we're going to do in this time is we're going to spend time wrestling this question. We're going to hold in our hands the bread and the cup. And we're going to ask ourselves a question. Do I really want Jesus? Or do I want something else? And for all the other things that we want, we're going to take time to confess and repent. So let me pray, and then we're going to take communion. Lord, have mercy on us. I ask that you'll guide us and lead us and love us. As we wrap up this series in uh, Samuel and Kings, I do ask that you would have, I pray that you have fully convinced us that human leaders are nothing compared to the great divine leader, you, Lord Jesus. Help us be honest about what we want and help us repent for wanting the wrong things. In your name we pray, amen.